I feel like I know jokes, but they're not funny and... They don't have to be. Uh, well, that is not a joke. Yeah, sure. It's a bad joke. Yeah, a bad joke, a groaner, a dad joke. Okay, well, this is a joke someone said to me. Uh, I did not think it was funny because my name is Sue. <laughs> they said, uh, what would... Uh, what did the lawyer name his daughter? Sue. It was very horrible. I hated it. <laughs> I remember that because I hated that joke. That that is a pretty bad joke. Yeah. It's not even like a womp womp joke. It's yeah. just like a oh, that's. It was a very bad joke. That's why I remember it. I hope she doesn't listen. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. This is the Calgarian. I'm Taylor Lambert. The Black Lives Matter movement is centered on issues of policing, both policing generally and police brutality against black and brown bodies specifically. But the current moment that we're in, which began eight weeks ago when George Floyd was killed by white police in Minneapolis, has included a broader conversation about systemic racism generally. But what I think gets lost is the fact that when we say systemic racism, what we are talking about is white supremacy. Because the definition of white supremacy is just the elevation of white people or white culture above other people and other cultures. The fact that you personally don't use racial slurs or you personally don't believe white people are superior doesn't change the reality that we all live in a society that was designed with white supremacy in mind. And not to go too far off in a tangent here, but one of the reasons why it is often hard to get white people to see this is because we're not supposed to see it. It's a system designed to benefit us at the expense of others, and throughout Canadian history right up to the present day, that system has been obscured and protected with stories. Stories in the form of national myth-making, Stories in the form of media or journalism or movies or books. The stories we consume inform our perception and understanding of the world and each other in ways both overt and covert. And I'm not trying to let anybody off the hook here. We are all responsible in this day and age especially for educating ourselves and making sure that our own perspectives are sufficiently broad. But... It's not that hard to see how being told a story your whole life, or a certain kind of story, or only hearing from certain kinds of storytellers, can limit our view of things without us even realizing it. My guest for this episode is Sue Shane Sumondo. She is the creator of Sue Stockwell, which began as a book club and has evolved into, among other things, an online book recommendation platform centered on black writers. We had a great conversation about how the stories we consume influence how we see the world and each other, and about performative allyship in this moment where everybody wants to be seen as woke, but relatively few are willing to actually put in the difficult work of confronting and dismantling white supremacy. A couple quick notes before we jump into the conversation. There's a link in the episode notes to a TED Talk that serves as a jumping-off point for my conversation with Sushane. It's short, and you're not required to go watch it, but I highly recommend it because it's awesome, but also because it's a useful framing for what we talk about in this episode. Also, 
uh, in deference to public health. We recorded this outside in a park, so you'll get to hear the occasional screaming child in the background. Okay, here is my conversation with Sue Shane Simone. <laughs> So I was thinking about where, where to start with this. Mm-hmm. Um, I was looking at your website for Sue Stockville, and on there you mention a, a TED Talk by Nigerian writer Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, mm-hmm. and you say, it's called uh, The Danger of a Single Story. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. I'm going to link to it in the episode notes. Everybody should go and watch it. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not that long, but it's really good. Mm-hmm. Um, and you said that that best captures your experience with literature as an African woman. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could maybe start by explaining a little bit about what the Tech Talk is mm-hmm. and how that describes your experience with literature. Um, so, uh, The Danger of a Single Story, um, Chimamanda is basically talking about how Africa is um, presented in just this narrow and single lens uh, so they can only be one of us um, and that doesn't give us we're not human beings if we don't have the complexity of human beings so we're not treated like human beings because we can only be uh, war-ridden or you know it's just very singular we can't be um, mothers who are happy we can't be people who go through like postpartum or people who just experience depression, middle-class people. um, It's just always the same type of person. So we aren't given um, kind of the ability to be complex. And that's kind of the essence of what being a human being is. And so it's like we're being denied our humanity in, in the way that we're presented. And that's been my experience where people just see in a very narrow lens, uh, you either one thing or another, um, or just in terms of the stories that you see, whether it's movies, it's um, people watch movies and they see like the war, like Hotel Rwanda or um, what the movie, Coming to America. Mm-hmm. They're very simplistic in their presentation of Africans. And so that's how people view you when you move here. And then people are like, oh, you have these ideas, you have these thoughts, you have these opinions. Like, they're so surprised that you have all these other complexities. Um, and people just, yeah, you're kind of stuck in a box in that sense. Yeah. She, yeah. yeah she talks about how, like, everyone is susceptible to this. That mm-hmm. uh, if you have a limited, non-diverse diet of stories in any form about any group of people then your understanding of the world or groups of people is mm-hmm. going to be very limited um, and because of the you know the power dynamics of our world mm-hmm. and who gets to tell what stories mm-hmm. I mean she gives the example of, of growing up in Nigeria mm-hmm. reading British and American children's yeah. literature which is all about you know white kids eating apples and talking about the weather and and, and like stuff that had nothing to do with her and yeah. she just didn't recognize herself in the, in those stories and didn't imagine that anyone like her could appear in literature mm-hmm. but then she went through the same thing her understanding of poor people yes was very limited because of growing up middle class and the limited stories that she had access to mm-hmm. so it was just it was fascinating and so I think that's a good jumping off point for talking about your project, mm-hmm. Sue Stockville. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us what what is a Stockville and what is Sue Stockville? <laughs> okay, so a Stockville is um, 
it's a group a, it's a very difficult thing to explain <laughs> because so in South Africa um, because black women weren't didn't have the freedom and kind of were not empowered to engage in the economy at the same level as men and as um, the white population in South Africa they started what is called a stock fell so it's basically just if we were to just create an investment uh, group amongst ourselves it's, it's, like a, not, it's like a credit union yeah people just like put in money and then at the end of every month one person gets uh, a portion of that money in some ways I think in some like my grandmother's part of a Stockville uh, like group and they have kind of funeral services and so if there's a funeral if anyone in that group has a funeral they already have a stock of plates um, and cooking utensils that they will bring to that person's home um, they help each other with the cooking and everything like that. So it's creating services that aren't normally accessible to black women, but creating them amongst themselves. It's, um, a, it's a structure of community that's kind of centered around access to resources and mm -hmm. money yes. in a way. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay. That kind of captures what I'm trying to do with Sue Stockfell, that we are collecting knowledge, I'm giving resources, um, and it's kind of just a cycle of giving each other uh, information and empowering each other. Sue Stockwell started out as a book club. Now it is a very strange thing that cannot be defined. <laughs> it's in the process of expanding. So um, in the past uh, with the Black Lives Matter protests, I engaged in an Amplify Melanated Voices campaign. And so people found out about Sue Stockwell. So I have been doing this for about a year. And suddenly I just had like an influx of followers and all these things. And so right now it's expanding to be more than a book club. I would say it's more of a creative, um, digital creative hub um, for African film and literature. And you started it last summer, right? It's a, yeah. year, it's a year old? Yeah, it's a year old. So what was the impetus for starting it? What made you decide to do this? Um, so I was working somewhere and then my contract ended. And so I was like, I was still like in the search for a job. And I was like, oh, I like reading. Um, might as well start a book club because I've always wanted to start a book club. And so I just started the book club. And then running a book club is very difficult. Um, <laughs> would not recommend. 10 out of 10 would not recommend. Why, why is it difficult? Um, coordinating is extremely difficult. And because there's no, there's no way to guarantee that people will read books. Um, and people, it, it's very difficult to guarantee that people have the same level of interest. Um, that you have right because I also did a minor in English and so I think the way sometimes I approach reading is very analytical um, there's certain things that I'm that I'm looking for when I'm reading and some people just read just for fun right so uh, and for me it's more it's a, it's a spiritual practice as well so then because it was very difficult coordinating people's schedules and I think because it's not something that people feel like they're committed to in that sense like they're not tied to a book club so there was a lot of like cancellations like on the day cancellations um and then that just became it became a lot more work for me than what I, I was giving out a lot more than I was getting and so I stopped the physical book club and I decided to just go completely digital so that if people go onto my Instagram if they want to read a book that I recommend they're going to go out and get it and read it um there's no pressure but I'm still just sharing um, so that's how it kind of transformed more into just like a digital online 
platform book club thing. But now that we are in the process of expanding, people are interested in meeting. So that's something I'm, I'm now doing again. So we'll see how it goes this time around. Yeah, it's definitely grown and changed shape in that year. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about that. But I'm curious, when you started it, who were you and who did you have in mind? Who are you doing it for? Was it for other black people or was it for white people to encourage them to read more diverse voices? Both? I would say it was a bit of both. Um, I feel like as black people, it's almost like uh, black famous. I don't know if you've ever heard that term, black famous. So there are people that only black people know uh, and these people are black famous. Whereas <laughs> if you say that name to a white person, they're going to be like, who's that? Um, there are actresses like that who act in, in these kind of sometimes like Tyler Perry type movies or mm-hmm. staple black movies that we only know. And so I find it's kind of the same thing with literature. Um, black people know black writers. It's, But also I think it's different because I'm also an immigrant. Um, so I'm from Zimbabwe. So I find that people who are immigrants and have grown up in a country which has majority black people already know a number of black writers even if they haven't read them whereas here there are a lot of first-generation Canadians who um, don't know a lot of black writers and so it was a bit of bridging that gap between like immigrants and um, first-generation Canadians but also opening it up to um, the white community in Calgary um, I know reading for me is is more of just like there are always things that are in your line of sight and so trying to figure out what is outside of your line of sight and reading is kind of considering all the things that are outside of my line of sight. Um, and I want other people to do that. And I have to do that for myself as well because I don't, my experience doesn't encompass all the experiences of all black people. Let's talk about you a little bit. You're, you're from Zimbabwe. Yeah. What was your um, relationship with reading like as a kid? Where did that start? Um, it started with my grandmother because I, I think she just used it as a babysitting thing. Like she was just <laughs> like, okay, I need this child to concentrate on something and leave me alone for like a good hour um and so she would always send me like to read she'd give me a book and then she'd be like oh read this i feel like you can't do that successfully with every kid oh that's true that's true i think i I think i also then just started i liked to read um then i figured out that i liked to read and so that's how i started reading as my grandmother and my grandmother she's just um such a phenomenal person she lost her parents when she was quite young so she didn't get to finish school but she is the most well-read person that I know and so I just I admire that a lot Um, I wanted to be as knowledgeable as she was I wanted to have that so when did you come to Canada how old were you I was 18 no I yeah I was about to turn 19 yeah your your family moved here no it was just me oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) what brought you here School. And did you come to Calgary? Yes, I know. <laughs> Bad decision. <laughs> in retrospect, I, it's because my mom's friend lived um, in Calgary, and she was like, oh, University of Calgary is so amazing. And I went on the website, and there's just pictures of fall and summer, and I was like, oh, look at me. I can already see myself <laughs> jogging. And um, that was not the reality of my experience. So I was... Very uh, naive, <laughs> I would say. Yeah. You know, it, thir- something like thirty percent of Calgary is not white. Mm-hmm. So that's still a very large percentage of the city that mm-hmm. is white. Um, what was that like moving to a city like this? Um, 
it was very isolating. Um, I think, yeah, I think I was very lonely for the first two years because of that. I, I, I did not enjoy the first two years. It just felt like everything, everyone just saw you as so, as an other, you know, everything that you say, people are like, oh, like, did you ever go to the mountains? And then you're kind of like, no. And then suddenly the conversation ends. People are like, okay, it's not worth pursuing because we're not the same in any kind of way. Yeah. And then that was kind of it. Um, or people's curiosity, their intentions were not, didn't feel pure. It was just more out of, oh, why do you speak such good English? And then that's not really something that can be used as like a gateway into becoming friends, right? If someone says yeah. that, you, you know, where do you go from there? Yeah. Okay, back to the Stockfell. When did you start shifting things, shifting the model away from like an actual book club that would meet to like more of a virtual thing? Because um, it feels like something that would like line up very well with the current time of the pandemic, but I wonder if that was um, separate from that. I think, well, because it was last year, I think it was a very different time. Um, I think I just realized I enjoyed it more. Uh, there was a certain disappointment in, in organizing something and then let's say people don't show up. Whereas if I just post a book and I post things, it's, you know, I've done my part and I don't need any anyone else to do anything in order to make that work feel complete. Whereas with a book club, I needed the sort of the validation from my book club members. I needed their commitment. I needed their time. And it was very disappointing for me to not get that. And so once I started digitally, it was just, I'm putting in the work. I love the work that I'm putting out. And that's, that's good enough for me. So I think it was more just like, um, it was also partly a self-esteem thing. And moving online also opens up your audience massively obviously like you, you don't you're not just limited to people in calgary who are interested in this now. yeah i have a lot of um i say zimbabwean um south african followers going worldwide <laughs> well <laughs> that's not really global three countries this is right. you gotta start somewhere <laughs> that is true <laughs> you gotta that's how you take over the world you start small i hate that well, <laughs> we'll see. you had a collaboration with sled island yes was, was the collaboration something that was happening anyway, or was that something that happened after they kind of moved the festival to an online uh, thing? It happened after the festival moved online, mm. um, and then um, they reached out to me, and they said we, we already have um, um, a reading list that they do in collaboration with Shelf Life, and they would like to um, put up my reading list as well. How, how does that stuff like that feel to you, like in terms of... You mentioned like validation and self-esteem for your project. Mm -hmm. Like Sled Island is, um, I love Sled. Mm -hmm. I would say that it, it can be a very white festival sometimes mm -hmm. um, in terms of the demographic and in terms of the bands that come in and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but it is like, it's a very, it's become something of an institution. So mm -hmm. getting attention or getting a platform from some from something like Sled, does that feel like genuine appreciation from the community i feel it feels like genuine appreciation from um the people at Splat island not so much <laughs> the community um i feel like i've been recognized for doing something in my community but not necessarily by my community um, but by like-minded people so people in the art development sector it's mm. it's not so much community I feel like something like this Stockwell uh, mm -hmm. is something that 
Calgary needed mm-hmm. uh, at any time, desperately. But I, I, I feel like the timing of it with the pandemic, everybody mm-hmm. doing stuff online, and then this moment that we're in with mm-hmm. Black Lives Matter that feels encouraging, frustrating, a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. How, does that, how does that feel? Like, does it feel like people are being disingenuous? Sometimes. Um, I think a, a portion of people are. And I think, and I talked about it yesterday because I went on live and someone had asked me, what is the most challenging thing now about Sue Stockfall? Because the challenge back then was coordination and all these other things, but that's no longer my issue now. Um, so more of my issue now is, is the performative allyship. I find I have, you know, people donating money, which I, which I greatly appreciate. I have people following me, but engaging with the day-to-day work doesn't happen often. Um, very few people are reading, or even just engagement in terms of, like, likes, people commenting, has gone down to almost, like, maybe two people comment. There's still a level of disappointment, I, I, would, I would have to say. A feeling like people feel like, oh, the work is done. We've liked this person. I've donated, and that's it. Like, it's something that I'm still sort of coming to terms with because there was the initial excitement of having gotten all this support, and then suddenly try, starting to realize that, okay, no, the work isn't even. We haven't even started doing the work at all, um, and that you can't force people into doing the work. You know, you can create resources and stuff like that, but you can't force people. And I think that's that's always very disappointing. Yeah, it's very disappointing. Yeah, to be very, it's very tied up in this moment. That's why I said it feels encouraging and frustrating because, like, it's encouraging to see all these people talking mm-hmm. about it and engaging with it. But then, is it just a moment that comes and goes? Mm-hmm. Everybody's kind of doing the thing, but not doing the work. Mm-hmm. The frustrating thing is that. Having white voices in literature elevated over black voices or people of color is a form of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And it's the same, that same structure of white supremacy that is limiting people's views that uh, allows them to continue operating in those systems unchallenged. Mm-hmm. Like they, they're not even recognizing that the moment that they're in is some, something that they can engage with in a meaningful way and do the work rather than just like engage in performative allyship and just be seen doing the thing so that that is yeah that is what is frustrating i think for me i just always have to think about what the big picture is for me personally like why i do what i do um people don't necessarily see the people see the value i don't know if it's i feel like people will only genuinely see the value if they engage in it right so i feel like the people who I'm doing this for, they will see the value of it in time. Um, I don't know, I'm, I'm just not very attached to the idea of, of, of like false support. It's not, It's of course it's disappointing, but I, I don't think I'm that attached to it. Yeah. Enough to be like, you know, what am I going to do to get people more engaged? I have, no, I have no interest in like forcing people. To me, like, if the privileged community doesn't read or doesn't engage with my work of course that's that's unfortunate but it's they're not the people I'm doing this work for I guess that's also part of the question of who who was my audience and sort of of course I wanted to uplift and encourage people to read um, authors of color for everyone to read more authors of color but reading 
black authors um, and other authors of color is more about allowing people to, to see themselves in these stories and, and stuff like that. And so I think that there will come a time and opportunity for me to be able to do that for my community and they will receive that when that time comes. And so um, the performative allyship comes from people who are not black or right. who are not people of color, but they're not, they're not the reason why I'm doing this. So it's okay. Yeah. I think for me, someone was like, oh, would you also like to, you know, circulate some of your collection of books because I have a huge collection of books around Calgary. And I thought, no, not really. Um, people have access to books here. If they would like to get them, they can get them. Yeah. The library's I, open again. Now. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't. I don't need to give people books. But the people that I would like to to go into bookstores and see these books are um, people like me. Back in Zimbabwe, when you know you go into books and books are now out of print because the writer has died, and we just don't have that kind of um, the institutions and the structures to to maintain. You know publishing you know book publishing and stuff like that so once an, an author dies sometimes their books completely go out of print you can't access them and I I have to purchase used copies and so I'm collecting these books so that um, I can make them accessible back home ah. um, because I'm buying used copies yeah. from all these places also you know it's one of um, my conundrums is having to buy them from Amazon because Amazon has a lot of used books so I'll find books by authors like Charles Mugoshi who is um, a revered Zimbabwean writer but his books are out of print and it's probably going to stay like that until someone buys the publishing rights and uh, the rights to those books and starts printing them again um, and so I'm collecting these books so that I can get into building some kind of library or making those collections available in Zimbabwe so for me this is not the end this is not the beginning of the end of Sue Stockwell. So, um, you mentioned African folklore. Yes. On your on your. Uh, oh wow. Was, I didn't know that. Yeah. The, oh, that's fun. The water features just came out of nowhere. Okay. That's fun. <laughs> Is it just gonna? Yeah. It's oh. just gonna just splash. Splash water around. Okay, that's fine. That's nice. I guess. Oh, I love the sound of water. Yeah, it's nice. I just I'm glad I wasn't standing over that great. Oh yeah, that is as true. the it's fountain came up oh, out of that nowhere. Oh, horrible. Yeah. Oh, wow. I would have cried. <laughs> I definitely would have cried. <laughs> I cry easily. <laughs> I'm like I'm watching the news and I start crying. Well, that's yeah, that's fair. Um, yeah, African fol folklore. You you said that you were um, taking some of it that had been collected by white authors and um, resharing it. Explain that a little bit more. So it was. Uh, an anthropologist, I don't know how to say his name. Well, I'll just butcher it actually. Harold Kullender or something like that. He uh, was an American anthropologist and so he traveled around um, Africa collecting African folklore and then he published a book filled with all these stories and so I transcribed them from this book and I put them on Sue Stockville. Is that even like... <laughs> well, it's our, there are stories so I'm also like... Um, so I put them up on Sue Stockwell so that people can read them because um, most of our histories are oral, um, so it's oral traditions, oral, um, and so I thought it was a really good way for people to engage with um, our storytelling before books came into play, right? Because it, it always feels like our history began with colonization, but 
we already had stories of our own before then and my grandfather used to um, sit us around and then he would tell us you know these kind of stories as well so I thought that would be cool for um, people with kids and stuff like that to look at some of the stories and maybe read them to their kids the ones that are appropriate some of them are like <laughs> so uh, I thought it was a good way to just engage with the younger generation because I have nieces and, and I want them to sort of have a sense that their history is not didn't start with colonization and also that these stories belong to us you know someone just collecting stories doesn't take away from the work of of our practice of storytelling he merely collected them but we have been doing this for centuries this is our history this is our inheritance like these stories are are our inheritance and so um, they should be accessible and because now things are in the written form because of the way the, in which the world has changed because of colonization we're adapting but still maintaining sort of archiving um, the things that are important to us and making them accessible I think accessibility is very important especially with the books um, being out of print in Zimbabwe so I always constantly think of that is I want people to be able to look up if things are digital now people should be able to as an as a black person as an African person I want to be able to still Google something and and find pages in Shauna on Google in my native language or pages in Debele or in Kosa in any kind of language and so we have to put these things on these digital platforms so that they're accessible because the internet is this huge place but it's also still dominated by um, European narratives of, of Africa or American movies about Africa and so I want to make that um, I want to take up some digital space for yeah for African stories you also said that your uh, ultimate goal mm -hmm. with Sue Stockwell is to turn into a publishing house you watched that, <laughs> that was, uh, yes yeah I am um, so I've how how and why how? I don't know. I don't know yet. Uh, it's something that I've just... Uh, yeah, so we have all these books that have been published before that are out of print. And of course, those books are important. Um, and so I think what's what's the best way to be able to, to get these books back in print? Um, and so I was like, oh, I should probably just... I should start a publishing company and buy some of the rights to these books, which is a grand idea. I don't know how it will work. So that was how the idea of publishing, of creating, um, making Sue Stockwell a publishing house came about. Um, but also it's that I don't just want it to be just regurgitating all these stories that were written because all these stories for us, especially as Africans, there are a lot of stories about colonization or independence, that very, that very specific period in time. So even like Chinua Achebe, things fall apart. It's pre-colonization and it's, it's just a very small period, but we've we're not frozen in time. I think that's also one of my um, my frustrations with the representation of Africa. It's we're frozen in time. We haven't moved past a certain point. Whether we're still writing about um, colonization or that period when people were thinking about independence, but even the way in which we think about independence now is so very different from the way we thought about it then because. And now there are other and there are different problems in Africa that are being written about and that we need to make space for. And so in order to make space for new books to be written, someone needs to be publishing those books. So I think it's, it's a bit of like 
protecting and recording the past and also making space for for the present and the future yeah that's great thank you hopefully it happens <laughs> i don't know I, I haven't even thought about how that would come to be to be honest it's just something i was like okay i I have to do this at some point. That's yeah. Well, now you said it on the internet, so now I know, you have now to do I, it. Now I have now to. Now you're do held it. to it. Um, unless I become a famous somebody, some or maybe I'll become a famous musician, and then I won't have time. Do you but, play music? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying that I just want to put that as a disclaimer that I may find another career. <laughs> Obviously, I'm going to put a link to. All the recommendations that you have on Instagram, mm -hmm. but are there any authors or books that you'd like to shout out? What are you reading right now? Oh, what am I reading right? So I'm actually I have four books on the go right now. Oh, how do you do that? I can't do that. Um, I never used to do that, but I find sometimes I'm not in the mood to read about a certain thing, or it's just too sad. Mm -hmm. I'm like I can't do this right now, and so I end up taking huge breaks in between readings so i was like okay instead of doing that i should just read multiple books so if i don't feel like reading that one at a certain point i'll read the other one so i am still trying it um i don't know how well it's working because my memory feels like it's i have the memory of a goldfish it seems um but i'm reading parable of the sower uh, parable of the talents by octavia e butler and that's the sequel to parable of the sower um i am also reading who fears death by Neka Okorafor. I have been reading that for months. I, it's because I um, I don't like to give up on books. That's also the other thing. I'm one of those people who's like, if I bought it, I have to finish it. I invested money, I'm going to finish it. Um, so that's, another, that's a book I'm struggling to finish. The other book I'm reading is Memory of Love by Aminata Forna. Love that book, I'm loving it so far. It's a love story. And I just, I'm, I'm super excited. Like, I'm always excited to read it. When I go to bed, when I'm about to go to bed, I'm like, yes, now I'm going to find out what happened. Like, do they finally kiss? Oh, it's <laughs> just so exciting. Um, so I'm about to finish Little Fires Everywhere. And I'm just reading that just because I need to watch the show. And I'm going to, I need to read the book first. What do you do when you're not reading four books at once or slowly building your international empire? <laughs> <laughs> what do I do? Um, I listen to music. I, I don't... I'm a very... I would say boring person, um, but very introverted. So I am... I just... Everything that I do is just like very... <laughs> I like live in a little bubble. Like I think we things. all live in our little bubbles now. Well, now, yeah. <laughs> but I've been living in this bubble. I'm one of those obnoxious introverts who's like... Y'all only starting to do this now. Um, <laughs> do you have a day job? Or is this your full-time thing? Um, this is my full-time thing for now. I'll see. Um, it takes a lot of time. I've, it takes, yeah. It takes a lot of time right now. Well, we'll see post-COVID as well. Because it just coincided with, with COVID and things that happened around that time. So um, we'll see once things are open up again what whether or not it's something that I can do on the side because it does take a lot of time. It's very time consuming. Um, I find whenever I'm, I'm, I'm working, Sue Stockwell kind of goes down because I'm so tired from 
work and then it's only something that I can really do on the weekend and and then the quality just goes down and it takes me much longer to read books and so I don't know I don't know if I want to be a starving artist starving creative yet <laughs> so I don't know it's not something that's generating a lot of income at the moment so I have to consider that there's just like the reality of it if I would love to do this just full-time just dedicate my my life to it to building this but I don't know if that's realistic right now yeah people should pay you someone should hire you to do this someone should pay you to do this yes yeah well hopefully anyone listening should pay me to do this. <laughs> just fund my life all I need is rent and food then I can do this I don't need money for anything else just rent and food like, and Wi-Fi yeah and Wi-Fi oh yeah Wi-Fi definitely <laughs> And maybe like, I don't know, essential oils for my diffuser, just creating the mood <laughs> for my working environment. But other than that, yeah, that's all I need. Well, thank you so much for the work you do and thanks for coming on and talking about this. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I hope I, I'm probably not gonna listen to this. <laughs> I hate listening to myself speak. I, I can't do it. That's okay, nobody listens to this podcast anyway. Really? <laughs> <laughs> That's it for the show. Big thanks to Sue Shane. There are links in the episode notes to go find Sue Stockfell. Please go follow and share and support her work because it is valuable to all of us. The Calgarian is hosted and produced by me, Taylor Lambert. Theme music is Dandelion by Ghostkeeper. If you like this show, please feed and water it. Share it on social media. Leave a review in your podcast app or show your support on Patreon. Visit thecalgarian.ca for more details. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.